Daniel 9, Daniel now is at the latter portion of his life. He's an old man, and he served under several kings. He served under Nebuchadnezzar. He served under uh, Belshazzar, and now he's in the first year of the reign of King Darius. So he's served under a lot of guys, but Daniel has never changed. Doesn't matter what king is in authority, his ultimate allegiance lies to God and to the Lord as his king. And he's always the same. Great example for us. It doesn't matter who's in a position of authority. Doesn't matter if it's Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, or Biden. Doesn't matter. Because we only have one king. His name is King Jesus. And so wherever you find us, whoever's in authority, you'll find the people of God just being faithful. That's the example of Daniel. But he's been in exile for quite some time. You can imagine most of his life has been spent in exile. And I think Daniel's just homesick. He just wants to go home. He wants the exile to be over. You can imagine he wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to rebuild that temple. He wants to be able to offer sacrifice and to worship again with his people. He just longs to be at home. And he begins to pray. And as he's praying, he's meditating upon Scripture. It was always a good way to pray is to pray through the Word of God. And he tells us that he's meditated on the words of the prophet Jeremiah, which speaks to the inspiration of Jeremiah and open another topic on the authority of scripture, which we'll do another day. But he's meditating on Jeremiah. And we know specifically he's meditating on Jeremiah 25 verse 11 because there God told Jeremiah, you're only gonna be in exile for 70 years, which is the amount of time it takes to, for a generation to kind of die off. So you're gonna be in exile in 70 years. And, and you know what Daniel's thinking? We're getting close to the end. We ought to be going home. We're going to get to go home soon. And he's, so he's praying. He's praying fervently. It's a powerful prayer. In fact, it would be a great study just on what prayer looks like. He's, he's, it's a prayer of confession, not just his own sins, but he's identifying with the people of God. We've sinned, and we're, you're just, God, and the judgments you've brought upon us, but we want to go home. When are you going to do this? And God shows up in a powerful way and gives Daniel answer to his prayer. So let's begin. Look with me at verse 20. We'll start reading there. It says, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So before Daniel even says amen, God is answering his prayer. In fact, Gabriel says that at the beginning of your supplication, the command was given. It just took God hearing the beginning of Daniel's heart and he already begins to respond. And you know, as you study God's worth, there, there's a lot of truths that sometimes you know, but they're hard to reconcile. And a couple of those truths that I know, but are hard to reconcile is that number one, God is sovereign. We're seeing this. He's sovereign over history in every aspect of history. But you know, another truth you see in scripture is that God moves in response to the prayers of his people. Now, I don't know how you fully reconcile those two. I, I have a feeling it's no problem for God. It's just a problem for me. But I'll tell you what. I believe both those things. Do you believe that this morning? 
that you can move the heart of God on the basis of your prayers. Daniel prayed fervently, passionately, with a humble heart, confessing sin and fasting. And it moved the heart of God. And God is going to respond to Daniel's prayer. And Daniel, remember, all he's asking is, when's the exile going to end? That's all he really wants to know. When are we going to get to go home? We want to go home, Lord. When's it going to happen? And guess what? God's going to give him a whole lot more than he asked for. God's going to tell him not just when the exile is going to end. God's going to tell him about when Messiah will come. He's not going to tell him just about the end of the exile. He's going to tell him about the end of human history. He's not just going to tell him about the end of the exile, but he's going to tell him how God will fulfill every promise he made to the nation of Israel. God is going to answer exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that he could ever think, ask, or imagine. And in verses 24 through 27, to me, are four of the most profound verses in all of God's word. Amazing what God does here. So we're going to walk through them carefully, and I want to forewarn you, arithmetic is involved. (laughs) And I barely made it through school. Math was my worst subject. In fact, I think I calculated up the last time I took a math course, I believe it was 1996, all right? So it's been a while. This is the first time in a long time I had to pull out a calculator to study the Word of God, all right? So all that is a forewarning, bear with me, and a reminder, study these things for yourself. You hear me say this a lot, but my greatest prayer is that what I do here on Sunday morning would just whet your appetite. I'd give you an hors d'oeuvre, and you'd say, I gotta go home and study it for myself. So don't just take my word for it. You gotta study these things on your own. What God does in verse 24 is he gives Daniel an overview of the prophecy. Look with me, verse 24. He says, 27 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So he says here, 70 weeks. Literally, it's 70 units of sevens. That's literally what it says. Some of your Bibles will just say sevens. It's 70 units of seven. So basically, you take 70 and you multiply it by seven and you get what? 490 years. So 490 years, and he says, to accomplish these things. And there's six things here. You'll note them very quickly. He says, to to finish transgression, meaning that the nation will rid itself completely of idolatry. That there's coming a day they will no longer worship idols and get caught up in those things like like they often did. Then he says not only to finish transgression, but to make an end of sin. That this people will no longer be disobedient to God. They'll be fully obedient to the Lord. And then to make atonement for iniquity. Meaning their sin will be covered. They'll be redeemed. They'll be saved. And then he says to bring in everlasting righteousness. 
meaning that they'll have the righteousness of God imputed to their account. They'll have the Holy Spirit of God residing within them. The law of God will be written on their heart and they'll fully obey God. And then to seal up vision and prophecy, meaning every promise of the Old Testament given to the nation of Israel will be finally and fully fulfilled. And then to anoint the most holy place, meaning Christ will rule his people in his temple. These are all six attributes of the kingdom. And what he's saying here is that in 490 years, these things will be fulfilled, that they'll be accomplished, that the fullness of the kingdom will come. Now, why does he say 70 weeks? Why not just say 490 years? Well, God is going to work in units of seven, and it'll become clear as we move through this. And by the way, get ready to hear the word seven a lot. In Revelation, the word seven is used 54 times, and there's a reason for that. We'll talk about it later. But God's gonna deal in units of seven. So he doesn't just say 490 years. He's gonna say 70 units of seven. So 490 years, and the kingdom will be established. Well, then the question is, when does the 490 years begin? 490 years from what? When does the clock start ticking on those 490 years? Well, look closer. God tells us. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern. And just stop right there. God intends for us to understand these things. This is not a riddle. God intends for Daniel to understand. God intends for the people of God to understand what he's saying here. So this is to be comprehended. This is to be understood. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So he says, it begins 490 years, it begins at the issuing of a decree to rebuild and to restore the city. So then you gotta ask, when did that happen? Because that's when the clock starts ticking. Well, we know that in the Old Testament, four times a decree was issued for the nation to go back and to do some form of work in, in the city or on the temple. The first of those decrees is issued in Ezra chapter one. You don't wanna write these down, go check God's word. Ezra chapter one, Cyrus gives a decree to rebuild the temple, but it's not to rebuild the city. It's not to rebuild and to regather worship. There's another decree issued by Darius in Ezra six. Darius in Ezra six, and it's just a reaffirmation of the decree of Cyrus, so that's not it. Then there's a decree of Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter seven. And there's a lot of uh, disagreement over these last two, but I, in my, my opinion, in my interpretation, this decree in Ezra chapter seven is not to fully rebuild the city. The final decree that we see in God's word is the one that I believe it's referring to here, and it's in Nehemiah chapter two. In Nehemiah chapter two, uh, Artaxerxes issues a decree to rebuild not just the temple, but the city, and to regather for worship. You remember in Nehemiah chapter two, you remember Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer for the king, and he goes in before the presence of the king, and he's sad, and he's not supposed to be sad. He's supposed to always be happy. 
And the king asks him, why are you sad? And he says, how can I be happy when my city, the, tombs of, the city of my tombs of my fathers lies in ruins and the gates are burning? How can I be happy when my hometown's burning? And the king essentially says, what do you want? And he shoots up a prayer and he asks that letters be given and that he have supplies so he can go back and rebuild the city and regather for worship. And the king, it says, with the queen sitting by Beside him, meaning ex-cathedra, he issues a decree to rebuild and to restore the city. I believe that's the decree we're talking about here. Now, extensive dating has been done. That's what I love about the word of God. Make no mistake about it, this is a history book. It's more than a history book, but it is a history book because it contains supernatural ideas and principles and truths. But those truths and those principles are contained within history and time and space and dates and time. And God gives us those things. And you can date these events. In fact, if you go read Nehemiah, it gives extensive dating. If you give Ezra, he's very specific about dates. And much work has been done on this. And it has been determined, some with great specificity, which I believe to be true. But many have narrowed the date of that decree to March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, you don't have to get that specific. Most agree 445 B.C., but it gets real specific. To March 14th, 445 B.C. So if you will, that's when the clock starts ticking on the 490 years. But what happens after that? He says that after the issuing of a decree, there'll be seven weeks. Seven times seven is what? 49. So there's gonna be the issuing of the decree, then 49 weeks to rebuild the temple. Guess how long it took them to rebuild the temple? About 49 years. And it also says that it will be done in times of distress. Was it times of distress? Read the book of Nehemiah. You bet it was times of distress. So he says 445 BC, move forward 49 years, the rebuilding of the temple. Then he says... Add 62 weeks, 62 times seven. Now we're getting difficult. Don't think I just know this. I've been studying this all week, all right? 62 times seven, 434 years. So 434 years plus the 49 years, 483 years. Listen, don't miss this. This is awesome. He says 445 BC, 483 years later, Messiah will present himself. Now, you can do some pretty quick math in your head, and I see some of you doing it right now because some of you are math people. To me, my head just bobbling, all right? But you go 445 BC, you fast forward 483 years. Now, don't hold with me just a second. Because you get to the New Testament, you read the Gospels, there were many times that they tried to make Jesus king, didn't they? Many times Christ would perform a miracle and they wanted to make him king. Do you remember what his response was every time? My hour has not come. Could God be so precise that he'd get it down to the hour? Isn't that amazing? My hour has not come. He says that over and over again until one day he tells his guys, go get a donkey for me at this certain place. And if they ask you what it's for, you tell them the king has need of it. And he takes that donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 
where it was said to the people that your king, your messianic king, will not be like the kings of the world. He'll not ride in on some white stallion. Your king, your messianic king, will be a humble king, and he will ride in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Christ rides in on the colt, the foal of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine. Everybody there called it the triumphal entry. Many of the commentators have called it the coronation of the king. You remember the people lay down palm branches and they're crying out what? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. Everybody there knew exactly what Christ was doing. He was presenting himself as king. You remember even the Pharisees who said, tell these folks to be quiet. You remember what Jesus said? If they're quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out. On that Palm Sunday, Christ presents himself as king. 445 BC, there was a guy named Sir Robert Anderson, wrote a book called The Coming Prince, did all the extensive dating, Went 445 BC, moved forward 483 years. You gotta take into consideration that the Babylonian calendar only had 360 days. He took into all kinds of other considerations, including leap years. He fast forward 483 years. He got down to a specific date. Guess what that date was? The exact date of that Palm Sunday when Christ rode into Jerusalem. Folks, if this is true, this book right here, you can bank on the fact that it's divine. Man doesn't make this stuff up. In fact, even the liberal scholars that take Daniel and they want to late date it because they think there's no way God could know these kinds of things in advance with this kind of specificity. But even their dating, even the late date, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but we know when the Hebrew was translated into Greek, we have the Septuagint during the Hellenization of that area of the world, we can know even their late date isn't late enough because there's no way even with the late date that Daniel could have known that Messiah would arrive on that exact Palm Sunday. This is amazing. So, 445 B.C., 49 years, 434 Messiah presents himself on that Palm Sunday. And what happens next? Because if the kings arrived, you expect what? The kingdom. Why is there no kingdom? Why doesn't the king establish his kingdom? We'll keep reading. What does it say? Look with me, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, meaning you got seven weeks, after the 62 weeks, what happens? It says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What does it mean that the Messiah will be cut off? You remember Isaiah 53, he prophesied this, that as for his generation who is considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. You know what cut off means? It means he would be rejected and killed. He would die. And then what would happen? By the way, isn't this amazing? It says even, not only will he be cut off, but he'll have nothing. Christ, when he was crucified, remember, he was stripped bare. As he was being crucified, Roman soldiers gambled for his only possessions, and he was buried in what? A borrowed tomb. He was with a rich man in his death, but it wasn't his tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. Did Christ have nothing when he died? He had nothing. I love, God doesn't want to leave anything to doubt. He wants to let you know, I know every detail. So the rebuilding of the temple, 62 weeks later, You've got the presentation of Messiah. Then after the 62 weeks, 
Messiah is rejected. He is killed. Then what comes next? And it tells us, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is the prince who is to come? Now we've been studying Daniel 2, 7, 8. Who is the prince who is to come? It's the Antichrist. But it doesn't say that Antichrist is gonna de destroy the city. Who does it say? It says the people of the prince who is to come. So who are the people of the prince who is to come? That's why you gotta study all this together. The head of gold, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. What came next? Rome. And you remember the coming future? Out of Rome will come some 10-nation confederacy. It will be a revival of Rome and who will head up that 10-nation confederacy? Antichrist. So who are the people of the prince who is to come? Rome. Is there a time in history when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and everything in it? Yes. 70 AD, um, Titus led the Roman legion into Jerusalem and they wiped out everything, the temple and the entire city, and there was not one stone left upon another. In fact, it even says it'll come in uh, with a flood. Does that paint a graphic picture? You know, imagine a flood coming in and just rushing through, and what does it do? It destroys everything. What did that Roman legion do? They destroyed everything. And then what will happen? Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. What happened to the nation of Israel? Presentation of Christ, rejected, killed. Destruction of the city and the temple, what happens? Well, if there's no temple, there's no what? There's no sacrifices. If there are no sacrifices, what else is there not? There's no priesthood. Even today, there is no priesthood because there's no temple and there's no sacrifice. The old covenant has been done away with. And the nation of God, the people of God, the nation of Israel, they have been deported. They've been spread out over the four corners of the earth. And everywhere they go, they have faced persecution and her blood has been spilled on every continent on the face of the earth. Do you see the accuracy of God's word? 445 BC, rebuilding the temple, presentation of the king, rejected, killed, city destroyed, nation deported, desolation and war. So how far have we come though, if you add this up? Stay with me. Some of y'all about to fall asleep, all right? You're going to miss the end of the world here if you don't wake up, all right? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add those together. Help me. What do you got? 69 weeks. How many weeks did he say total? What are we missing? We're missing one week. We're missing the 70th week of Daniel. What happened? I mean, because... Up to this point, everything is sequential, right? It just happens one right after another. What happened? Here's what happened. At the death of Christ, the clock jams. And what you have at the death of Christ until the 70th week is a gap. What is the gap? It's a mystery. Why doesn't, why doesn't he mention it here? Why didn't God tell them? Well, number one, it's talking about Israel. He's giving information that pertains to Israel in the end of the time. But it's not given because it's a mystery. 
It's a mystery that wasn't given to them, but is made known in the New Testament. And the New Testament saint gets to know that mystery, mystery. And what is the mystery? It's you. It's me. It's called the church. It's the ecclesia as God is calling out a group of people who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. That you and I, as the Jew would have called us, Gentile dogs who can't trace our lineage back to Abraham. Guess what God did? This is amazing, folks. You know what God did? He opened your eyes and my eyes to a Jewish book and a Jewish savior. And he said, once you're not a people, now you can be a people. How? Through faith. As Paul's gonna say to the Romans, they found righteousness by faith. You know what Israel was trying to do? They, they over a period of time, they took the law and made it a means of salvation. They made it a means to get to righteousness. And you know what Paul says? They never attained it because the law was never intended to provide righteousness, but the Gentile was able to find righteousness by faith, and we get grafted into the people of God. It's amazing. I mean, when you think about this, think about the, the, the entirety of the Bible. When you look at it, it's a Jewish book, folks. I mean, we just got done studying Genesis. What is Genesis, the bulk of it, about? It's about the nation of Israel, the, the formation of this people of God that he calls out and he makes promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises three aspects of it, land, seed, and blessing. And he reiterates those promises. And then, and then you get to Exodus. It's their Exodus from Egyptian bondage. For who? For the nation. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now you get a sacrificial system. So you got the law. And then, then you get the sacrificial system. For who? For the nation. And then you get to Joshua. It's the conquest of the land. For who? For the nation. Then you get Judges, the, the failures of the nation. Then you get to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. You get the monarchy of the nation. And then you get the prophets and the promises. And then all of a sudden you come to the New Testament and the gospel is primarily Jewish apart from Luke to the nation. And Christ comes there, Messiah comes, they reject him. And God turns his attention to who? To the Gentile. Remember, the gospel is always to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And in Acts, the gospel goes out to the Jew and it's rejected. And then where, do, where does God go? He stamps on this fire and the sparks spread, and the gospel goes out to the goyim, the nations. That's you and I. And you keep reading the Bible, and what happens? It's been a Jewish book all the way up. What comes after Acts? Tell me you know this. Rome. Is that Jewish? No. What comes next? Corinth. And Galatia. And Ephesus. And Philippi. And Colossae. Who is that? It's the Gentiles. It's you and me. And God calls us out and brings us in. But the question is, is God done with Israel? No, he is not. Listen to me this morning. The church is not Israel. God has made promises to them that he will fulfill. So if you keep reading the New Testament, you get through all those epistles, what do you come to? The last book. What's the last book? Tell me. Revelation. What is the bulk of Revelation about? What are chapters 6 through 18? Guess what they're about? They're about one week or seven years. Isn't this awesome? What are we waiting on? We're waiting on the last week. You know what the last week is? It's the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the 70th week of Daniel. Now, don't tell me God ain't good. 
and that he doesn't know what he's doing. It is in fact the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. You remember Jacob, the guy who wrestled with God and God changed his name to what? Israel. Listen to me. The book of Revelation primarily deals with Israel and God's judgment on the world. So then the question becomes, well, when, when, when does that begin? When does the tribulation begin? When does that final week begin? Well, keep looking. God tells us. Look at verse 27. And he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrificing grain offering. Let's just stop right there. He will make a firm covenant. Who is the he? It's the prince who is to come. It's Antichrist. And Antichrist is going to make a covenant with who? Israel. Israel is not going to covenant with God. They're going to covenant with a pagan. They'll covenant with Antichrist. He's gonna make a seven-year covenant, but in the middle of that week, he'll put a stop to sacrificing grain offerings. Now, if there's a stop to sacrificing grain offerings, then what does that mean? It means there must be what? A temple. Now, first of all, even before we go to the temple part, you realize that up to 1948, in 1947, the idea of Israel making a covenant with Antichrist was ridiculous. Why was it ridiculous in 1947? Because Israel didn't exist. But then they regathered and they become a nation. And then, the beginning of the tribulation, they'll make a covenant with Antichrist and he's gonna allow them to rebuild the temple. And this is amazing. If you've been to Israel, it's overwhelmingly amazing because at the Temple Mount is now uh, what we believe to be the Holy of Holies is what? It's the Dome of the Rock. It's essentially a Muslim mosque. In fact, on that mosque is written the words, you are no father and you had no son. It's Ishmael giving it to Isaac again. But somehow this Antichrist who's gonna be able to give, bring peace in in an amazing way, primarily because he's in power over this 10-nation confederacy, is gonna kick the Muslim population. By the way, do you know this? Israel is outnumbered 800 to one by the Muslims that surround them. And yet the complaint is what? That they got too much land. It's crazy. But somehow Antichrist will remove the Muslim Jewish people will rebuild the temple. They'll begin offering sacrifice. But in the middle of that tribulation period, in the middle of that seven years, three and a half years in, guess what Antichrist does? He does what Satan does. He lies. That's what Satan does. He promises us good things. He says, come on, follow me. I'll give you some good stuff. Come in agreement with me. But he never comes through. He reneges on his promise. He puts an end to sacrifice. And it says, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And even until a complete destruction, one of the decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So on the wing of abomination, so at the end of that three and a half years will be what we refer to as the abomination of desolations. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 24. In fact, he says, I'm quoting from the prophet Daniel when I talk about the abominations and he says that the Antichrist is gonna go into the holy place. He's gonna set himself up as God. He'll desecrate the temple. And he says, Jesus tells the people when that day happens, what does he say? You run for the hills. He says, if you're, you pray you're not nursing, pray that you're not pregnant, pray it's not winter, pray that it's not Sabbath. If you gotta go back and get a coat, forget it, just run. Because it's gonna get really bad. That last three and a half years is known as the great tribulation and it gets really bad. And you know what God does? He brings the nation to its knees. 
this nation that has rejected him, he brings them to their knees, and at the end of the tribulation, guess what they do? They finally cry out. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 said, you'll not see me again until you cry out. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll cry out for Christ. They'll finally cry out for Messiah. And guess what will happen? As the nations of the world are gathered in the valley of Armageddon, Christ will come with his armies. Will we be there? Do we get to see the second coming? Folks, we are the second coming. We come with Christ. So I hope you don't mind heights or horses because we're coming. And he will come and these nations that are gathered against him, guess what he does? He wipes them out. And then guess what he does? In fact, you read Revelation 19. It's not a pretty sight. He calls for the birds of the air because there's so much death. He says, come, it's buffet, it's Denny's, come on. He puts down all the enemies And then you know what he does? For a thousand years, he establishes his reign on earth. And guess what? Every promise made to Israel is fully and finally fulfilled. And then you know what he does? There's a rebellion, one more, and it's put down. And then the heavens and the earth and all the elements will melt with intense heat. The whole thing's coming down and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Folks, God is sovereign over every aspect of history. And if he can be trusted with these things, to accurately tell you, listen, these people who want to allegorize this stuff, I don't even, I can't understand it. If his coming, if his first coming was literal, I'm going to trust his second coming is literal too. But if he can be trusted with his past predictions, rest assured he can be trusted with his future ones. It's a good reminder that he is coming. And when he returns, it'll be too late to turn to him. See, right now, a lot of times in the world, the the worst thing that can be said of you is that you're a Christian. That's what they think anyway. But when that day comes, the worst thing that could be said of you is that you're not a Christian. Don't be caught off guard. You can't claim ignorance. You've been told on the base of God's word that he's coming back and you'll be judged. This also reminds us of where we're at, by the way. We're gonna study this. We get into Revelation. We look at the seven letters to the seven churches. Why seven letters to seven churches in a book that's prophecy? Because I believe those churches are not only literal, but they are prophetic of the church age. And guess what the last church is? It's a church called what? Laodicea. Do you know what Laodicea means? It means the people rule. That they outsmart God and think they know better than God. They start to do their own thing. They're rich and they're wealthy. They don't really need God. They start operating on their own basis. And guess where Christ is? Behold, I stand at the door. He's on the outside. Is that not a pretty good description of the big C church today? But the word to us is we're the anchor leg It's been said through a lot of generations, but rest assured today, know this. We are in the last days. The clock is ticking. It's up to us to finish strong. Let's be found faithful. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.
that you have told us. You've not left us in the dark about who you are, what you're doing, and what you will do in the future. And I just pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit would illumine their minds to these simple truths that if you can be trusted when you say that Christ will come at this time, and he does, just as you said he would, then you can also be trusted when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You can also be trusted when you say, whosoever will may come. You can also be trusted when your word says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can also be trusted when you say, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they would know today they don't have to jump through any religious hoops. That today the, the righteousness of God can be imputed to their account on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ who died for them. I pray that they would trust you and know your salvation, know your freedom, know your forgiveness and know the certainty of knowing that they will always be with you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that you would give us a greater sense of urgency, a deeper sense of awe and trust in who you are and your sovereignty, and a deeper commitment to your mission to make your gospel known to the nations. God, help us so that when you return, you will find us faithful. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.